This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. The Hoover Institution at Stanford University recently established the Hoover Education Success Initiative, known as HESI for short. And it's issued four reports over the course of this past year. The four reports are all devoted to one or another aspect of the US educational system and how we need to improve it in order to maintain it as a world-class K-12 system. The executive director for the initiative is Christopher Ruskowski, who was formerly the state superintendent of education for the state of New Mexico. To talk about the four reports, I have Christopher Ruskowski with me today on the Education Exchange. And in particular, we are going to discuss the one that was released most recently entitled Toward More Equitable School Choice. Admittedly, it's a self-indulgent exercise because I prepared this report myself. But CR has agreed, well, CR is what we refer to uh, Christopher Ruskowski, his friends and colleagues call him CR. So we'll do that here on the podcast. So he agreed to pose some questions, and but first of all, tell us a little bit about HESI Initiative more generally. So thank you, CR, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, it's my first time on the Education Exchange, and it's, it's great to be here. Well, first of all, CR, can you tell me a little bit about the goals of the Hoover Education Success Initiative? What, what's the purpose? What's the mission? Yeah, so we launched the Hoover Education Success Initiative, also referred to as HESI, as another acronym to add to, to our repertoire, uh, about 18 months ago. Uh, and it was it's a collective effort. It's yourself, Paul, and also joined by our chair, Rick Hanyashek, and Dr. Margaret Raymond, referred to as Mackey, and of course, Checker Finn, uh, as our steering committee. And I think the that HESI overall, you know, it's nested within Hoover. And it was launched in response to the passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act in 2015, which again placed states clearly in charge of American uh, education policy. And so we've now launched to put together sound research, sound evidence, sound analysis, and sound policy recommendations uh, to put in front of state policymakers from the governor to the state commissioner, uh, the legislatures, and, and other advocacy groups in the policy and program space. Uh, we to get there, as you know, Paul, and having having authored our fourth of of the first four papers that were released this year, we host workshops, we host an annual symposium, uh, and we put together these papers, and they're available on our website at hoover.org/backslash/hesse. So, Paul, you know a little bit about it. You've been you've been there every step of the way over the past eighteen months, and uh, now we have four papers to present to the world. So what are these four papers? Well, the first paper was the, the, the lead was, was Rick Hanyashek uh, called Tomorrow's Teacher Compensation, focused on the future of teacher pay and human capital. And the second paper released not long after earlier this year was a paper led by Mackie Raymond, which focused on, uh, it was called The Diploma Dilemma, which focused on high school, high school graduation requirements and career pathways. And then about a month ago, uh, Checker Finn, was the pilot on a paper on the past, present, and future of school accountability, uh, which, which you know, is, is exactly as the title says. And then Paul, uh, Paul just seven days ago. <laughs> yeah, and then seven days ago, Paul, your, your paper. So obviously this is timely. 
with toward equitable school choice. And I know we're going to get into that paper today. Well, exactly. And I'd like to uh, shift roles then and just make you the interlocutor and, uh, and chat with me about the, uh, the latest report on school choice. Are you willing to do that? Yeah, Paul, I mean, let's, let's flip the script here and go to this reverse Q&A. Uh, I think first and foremost, I think I'd love to hear you talk the audience through the process by which you constructed this paper, because I know we had some contributing authors and we it was about, you know, nine months of work. And I thought you might want to get the tip of, tip of the hat to your, to your, to your contributing authors. Yes, actually, uh, all of that information is available on the Hoover website, too. Uh, you know the name of that Hoover website. I do. Hoover.org backslash HESI. So, yeah, the, uh, there are four papers that underpin the paper that I prepared, and I stole ruthlessly from them. So, it, it, those of you who really want to dig into this in detail should, should take a look at those four research port, reports. There's, there's one by Robin Lake up at the Center for Reinventing Public Education on uh, school choice within school districts, the, the school, school choice within the uh, public schools. Uh, there's another one by Anna Egalite, which is on charter schools. And there's one on... Uh, private school choice, how you can get access to the private sector if you come from a poor family, prepared by Patrick Wolf. And then there's a cross-cutting paper that looks at the whole question of the, of the amount of segregation that is created by these systems of school choice that are being pulled together. And that's been prepared by Matthew Chingus and Thomas Menares. And so, Paul, when you when you got those four papers and they were finalized and they came to you, uh, you then tied those all together, wound them up, and created this briefing toward more equitable school choice. What do you mean by that? What does that mean, more equitable school choice? Well, of course, we've always had school choice. Whenever you uh, buy a home or rent an apartment or decide where to live, if you have children in, in your life, you are making a decision about where your children should go to school, assuming that you're going to go to the public school in your neighborhood. You pick that neighborhood in part because the school in it is one that you want your child to attend. And 20% of all Americans admit to doing that. I, I say everybody's doing it. But if you ask people, 20% of those people who are uh, picking their school by choosing their neighborhood, frankly, will tell somebody who interviews them, yeah, I, I did it. I picked my neighborhood because I like the school there. So we have school choice. You can send your child also to the private sector. If you don't like any public school, you don't have to pick a neighborhood. You can just go find the private school of your choice. Uh, but of course, that's pretty expensive. And also, it can be very expensive to pick a really top-notch district-operated school. So this is the most inequitable form of choice that you can imagine. Some people call it real estate choice. It's, it's the residential school choice is another phrase. But whatever the phrase is, it's very inequitable. If you don't have money, you don't have the same kind of choice as wealthy people have. So the question is, 
can we do anything about that? Or is that just baked in? Do we just have to accept that? And I think that there are a lot of things we can do to ameliorate that will never truly undermine the inequities of school choice in the United States in all probability, but we can move to a more equitable choice system. Paul, one of the key features of the Hoover Education Success Initiative, and I'm sure one of the key features of Education Exchange Podcast and, and all of your work is starting with the research, starting with the evidence, what, where does the evidence lead us? Where does the science lead us? So does this paper settle the score once and for all as to whether or not magnet schools, vouchers, charter schools, inter and intra-district choice taken together or taken individually, whether or not they lead to better results for kids? Well, that's a great question, and it's a question that is difficult to answer, though we have enormous body of research that has looked at it. This is one of the most researched questions out there in education. Probably teacher pay uh, uh, arrival set, you know, how, how much we pay a teacher, does, does that make a lot of difference in, in how much kids learn? Uh, and, and Rick Hanushek explores that one, but but those two are the questions that we know more about what the research says than any others. And uh, it has to be admitted that it's not absolutely clear that choice has so far improved the options available. Now, remember that the kind of choice that's on the table today really doesn't get underway until about the the beginning of the 21st century. It's not like we've had these more equitable forms of choice for a very long period of time. We've only had it uh, for about 20 years. Um, the, you know, the late 20th century had a few examples here and there of school voucher programs and a few charter schools, but it's only in the last 20 years that we've really begun to offer things at scale. And so it's not surprising that we don't have definitive evidence on the effectiveness of these innovations because it takes a long time for that to happen. You know, kids go to school for 12 years and then only later do they go down to college and then on into the workforce and we can see the long-term effects of a school choice program. Having said that, the signs are that it is marginally better and this the choice systems are improving in the United States and the old fashioned district school is not improving nearly as rapidly and may not be improving at all. And right now during COVID may be taking huge steps backwards. I was struck Paul, that one of the conclusions in the, in the evidence was that charter schools in particular have been a particularly effective intervention for students in low-income communities in certain cities, if I'm saying that right. Well, yes, I think it, that's the other uh, major finding that you th that I think the, you know, the the lion's share of the data supports. It's not like every study out there, but the lion's share of the studies out there say that school choice is making life better for those who are most in need of it, for those from disadvantaged groups. So 
if, if we look at, for example, the charter schools in Boston or Newark or New York City or Washington, D.C. or New Orleans or Los Angeles, in all of these and many other urban settings, we are finding that it makes a big difference to African-Americans if they can have access to an alternative to their local public school. So Paul, here's a two-part question. As, as you mentioned, I had the chance to be the uh, State Secretary of Education in New Mexico. I had a chance to work with governors on both sides of the aisle uh, over the past 10 years and in places like Delaware and in New Mexico. And part of the goal of the Hoover Education Success Initiative is to advise and provide guidance to state policymakers like, like I was formally. And so you the paper, let's say, I mean, you're you let's say you get an audience with a governor or a state commissioner, and they say, Paul, I, I read your executive summary. What should I do? Now I know you, I know you offer these these six principles, and I'd love to have you talk through the six principles. That you offer, but beyond the six principles, you know what? What would you advise uh, a governor or a state commissioner to take on, maybe in a state where they don't have a lot of school choice so far? Well, I suppose uh, it all depends. Like you say, it depends on on the particular state and the particular circumstances, and what's realistic politically in that particular in that particular environment. But if I were to talk to a governor in general, I would say focus on the high school, focus on the middle school. School choice enthusiasts have focused in the past 20 years on the elementary school disproportionately. And that may not be, that may not have been the wisest decision. I can see how it happened. It happened because it's easier to set up new elementary schools. You don't have to have as complicated a school system. It's not as expensive. Uh, you can start it very quickly. And a lot of people say you got to grow these things from the bottom. You, you got to have uh, children begin in a school and stay with that school in order for it to be most effective over the course of their education. But the payoff, according to the research literature that I have read, the payoff from interventions in the high school and the middle school is much greater than the elementary school. The elementary school, our district schools across the country don't do all that badly. You're seeing improvements in student performance over time. You're seeing that the district schools don't have such challenges and such problems that they can't find a way of reaching the, the needs of their students. Now, when they get into middle school, you, get, you see some signs that they don't really know quite how to deal with the fact that they have to operate according to a set of rules that courts have imposed upon them, that states have imposed on them, that the federal government has imposed upon them, that limit their flexibility to deal with the challenges of adolescence. And schools of choice have much more flexibility. And then they can create an environment, especially for disadvantaged kids, that can deal with the reality that's out there that you have to have a set of institutional constraints on the community in order to provide the educational experiences that young people need. So I would, I would say to the governor, focus on the secondary schools. 
that's where the biggest problem is. Again, Paul Peterson and I talking on the Education Exchange about his latest paper, Toward Equitable School Choice, part of the Hoover Education Success Initiative. And again, both the paper, the executive summary, and the press release are all available at hoover.org backslash H-E-S-I. You know, Paul, when I jumped to the executive summary again this morning, to kind of, again, imagine I was going into work as the state commissioner. And I, I went back and I read your six principles to guide future action. And they are, states should encourage multiple forms of school choice, number one. Number two, U.S. education needs greater flexibility and adaptability than what is currently offered by the rigid system of neighborhood elementary and comprehensive high schools. Number three, a family's choice of school should not be distorted by fiscal policies that favor one sector over another. And then number four, school choice should facilitate desegregation. Number five, the focus should be, in, should be on enhancing choice in secondary education, which I believe is what you just plugged to our hypothetical governor. And number six, choice by itself is not enough. I, I guess I want to pick up on points three and four, that a family's choice of school should not be distorted by fiscal policies that favor one sector over another. And second, school choice should facilitate desegregation. Can you go into a little bit more detail about each of those key principles? Well, let's start with the second one, the desegregation issue, because that one gets uh, discussed a lot out there. Uh, people are concerned that if you give families a choice of school, they're going to pick schools that look like, uh, they're going to pick schools that serve children that look like their own children that people want to have their own child educated in an environment that is racially exclusive. And this is actually a concern uh, about minority parents as much as uh, white Americans. Uh, but of course, the greatest concern that people have is that whites will want to isolate themselves from uh, minority children uh, if they are given a choice of school. And that's why we assigned a paper solely to that topic uh, to have Matt Chingos and, and uh, uh, his co-author uh, prepare a paper that was totally dispassionate. And they actually say that, yes, it's true that may be happening on the margins to some small extent, but we're not seeing a big impact. You have to realize that fundamentally, the system of real estate choice or residential choice, that topic I began with, is a very powerful segregating force in our society. Our residential communities are homogeneous. They're homogeneous by race and by income. And so if we're going to have choice, and there's no way to avoid it, as far as we know, if we're going to have choice in our metropolitan areas, we're going to have some degree of segregation. But the new forms of choice are not adding significantly to it. It's a, it's a very modest impact. And it may be driven more by the choices of minority students than majority ones. So I don't think we should be satisfied with that. I think we should move forward. We should try to figure out the best way of having a choice system that will not add to further segregation. And specifically, when you talk about school vouchers, one of the problems with them is that they are made available only to low-income families. 
And while I understand why that's the case, because that's where the need is, I don't think we should pursue that policy so ruthlessly that we can only create private schools for students who are receiving vouchers that are serving low-income populations. That's creating the very segregated institutions that we want to avoid. And charter schools should be located in places where you can have a, uh, a diverse set of students attending those schools. Now, a lot of charter schools are already today admitting students only by lot, only by a lottery. And therefore, we don't have a lot of hyper-segregated uh, uh, private schools or charter schools, except in those neighborhoods that are overwhelmingly minority. And it may be that we want to make more of an effort to make sure we locate those charter schools in communities where they can draw upon uh, applicants that will be from all racial backgrounds. So there are things that we can do to make school choice even uh, less segregative than it is today. Uh, but the new forms of choice out there uh, are not a more adding to the severity of the problem to, to a very significant degree. Now, switching back to the first question you asked. Yes, this, this other principle that you mentioned. The, on the money side, you know, should all schools receive pretty much the same amount of funding? Yes, I mean, that's a sort of a simple idea, right? It, it, you, you have the same, now, at the same time, you've got to understand that there's a lot of legacy costs that the district schools have got these overwhelming pensions that they have allowed to acquire. And you could say, well, that's their problem, but it's not their problem. Our problem is going forward, given the fact that we have these legacy costs, I think we have to recognize that the district schools need to have the money needed to cover the costs that have been uh, uh, deferred down to the present and not uh, eliminate that. And the charter schools don't have that and the private schools don't have that. So I think with, with that kind of adjustment, we can put things on more or less an even keel. Uh, up until now, we have been uh, overcompensating for that problem, but I think we, we, we can uh, continue to compensate to some extent. So again, you're listening to Paul Peterson here on his own show, being interviewed uh, by Christopher Oskowski, myself here on the Education Exchange. Uh, turning the microphone on Dr. Peterson today. Uh, Paul, kind of two more questions as we close out today. So one is a couple of unique features of school choice that you talk about at the end of the paper. One, transportation. Two, creating incubators for leaders of color. And three, resisting the temptation, again, to quote the paper here, resisting the temptation to regulate the private sector while also precluding low quality private schools from participating in government sponsored programs. I thought those were three interesting features. We could do a whole show on those three features, but why did you choose to name those three things towards the end of the paper? Well, I mean, these are the toughest nuts to crack and, uh, Let's take the last one first, because that's the recommendation that has probably received the most criticism thus far, which is to say, I'm saying you, you want to, the accountability provisions 
that have been uh, developed in the 21st century, No Child Left Behind and ESSA, uh, the uh, following uh, federal legislation and the all the major state accountability systems. You wanna be careful when you start applying them to the private sector because the private sector has, uh, many of those schools have completely different curricula and they have very different uh, goals and missions. And uh, if you're gonna put a big accountability system on top of them, you're not gonna give them the flexibility that they need. And you're gonna discourage many private schools from being willing to participate in a voucher program. And it is gonna be self-defeating. So uh, a lot of people say, well, how can you give away government money without accountability? And I think the only thing I can say to that is those schools are being held accountable because in the end, the parents have a choice and they can say, no, I'm not gonna send my child to that school any longer. And many parents have penalized schools for that very purpose. Uh, now, you gotta remind me, you asked me three questions. Well, I, I, threw a few, I threw a few things at you, but I'll, I'll ask, you know, you talk about transportation and you also talk about leaders of color in the paper. And I want folks to, to read the paper again at hoover.org backslash H-E-S-I. But Paul, I'd be remiss if I didn't use our last couple minutes to ask you the question that is certainly being talked about at, at water coolers in the education world right now, which is what is a paper like this? You know, your, your, your latest paper toward equitable school choice released last week uh, at Hoover. What does a paper like this mean one month after the election of the Biden administration? Is well, this you know, yeah, that's a great that, question. Are they gonna? Are they gonna? Is this gonna be an administration that follows the evidence and the data that you've presented here on school choice? You know, school choice is a decision that's being made by state houses, by state legislatures, by local school districts. It's not a decision that's being made by the federal government. Maybe a little bit on the edges. You know, Donald Trump appointed Betsy DeMoss who said that she was passionate about providing children with a choice of school. And yet the four years of the Trump administration have not seen a large expansion of school choice options. It's maybe expanded a bit on the edges, but certainly not at any faster rate than under the Obama administration. I would even say it's not as fast a rate as under the Obama administration, which Biden was a part of. And so those decisions at the state level could very well be accelerated during this period of time. There has been not a major change in state houses over the, uh, in, in 2020. It, composition of state legislatures is a, roughly the same as it was before the election. And who knows what's gonna happen as we go downstream. So, and, and the, the second point is given the, pandemic and given the exposure of so many Americans to the possibilities of new forms of educating children, we don't know what the future is going to hold for school choice, but we do know this, that unless we think through what are the issues and what we should do, and unless we're informed by research, we're not going to be prepared to make smart choices going forward. So that's the reason why now as compared to any other time is the very best time to have a new set of ideas out there on the table to think about. Well, certainly as the executive director of the Hoover Education 
success initiative, I want to encourage everyone to read Paul's paper and the other three papers uh, that have been released by the Hoover Education Success Initiative. Uh, I, we'd be remiss if we didn't thank Matt Chingos and Tomas Monarez and Anna Galate, Patrick Wolf, and Robin Lake for contributing. But Paul, thank you for putting it all together and creating this paper toward equitable school choice. And we're going to get into the bloodstream and into governors and legislatures' hands over the next six months. Well, thank you, CR, for joining me on the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. I've been speaking with Christopher Ruskowski, uh, who is a Distinguished Policy Fellow at the Hoover Institution and was the Superintendent of Education for the State of New Mexico before he held that position. So please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.